Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1132 with a release and air date of Saturday, November 6, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1132 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The ARRL files comments on the FCC Draft World Radio Communications Conference recommendations. The recent threat from Hurricane Etta, a Category 4 hurricane, prompted an amateur activation. The International Amateur Radio Union Region 2 Executive Committee meets during multiple virtual sessions. We will have the meeting details. The International Space Station recently celebrated 20 years with a crew on board. Brent Taylor, VY2HF, is appointed to the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame Board of Trustees. A clean sweep in the ARRL November sweepstakes means working 84 sections this year. We will have the details. An amateur operator puts a large amount of vintage amateur radio publications online. And the FCC clears the way for digital AM broadcasting in the United States. We will have all the details coming up in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will solve the mysterious case of the malicious PDF. Australia's own Arnold Benshoff, VK6FLAB, says that the excitement is palpable at the component level. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOY, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill will relate the story of why hams in Schenectady, New York, can't drive down Weaver Street. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about maintenance of your tower guy lines. And this week, we will have an interview with Hudson Division Director Rhea Jaram, N2RJ, that was recently conducted by Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, from the QSO Today podcast. All of that is straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, where the weather has gone from having 7 inches of snow outside to being plus 75 degrees today and sunny. If you're in New York, if you don't like the weather, you just wait a minute. I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from historic Armory Square, from the Museum of Science and Technology in downtown Syracuse, New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our news bureau in Troy, New York, I'm Eric, KD2RJX. As we enjoy a second Indian summer, high atop Sand Hill here in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And from Studio One in Paradise, oops, I mean Central Florida, this is Fred Fitty, November Fox, 2 Fox. 
30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. This is W2XBS, and the This Week in Amateur Radio newsroom with some late-breaking news as we come to air this week. Kristen McIntyre, K6WX of San Jose, California, has assumed the office of ARRL Pacific Division Director following the recent vacancy in the office. The ARRL Articles of Association stipulate that she will serve as director for the remainder of the current term, which expires on December 31, 2022. She will join the league's board, which is comprised of the organization's 15 directors, each representing a geographical area. McIntyre was appointed as a division vice director in 2018 and was unopposed as a candidate for the position in 2019. She was first licensed in the late 1970s while a student at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She holds an amateur extra class license. She has served as ARRL technical coordinator for the East Bay section and as a member of the Palo Alto Amateur Radio Club. McIntyre also is licensed in Japan, her second home, as JI1IZZ. She is a senior software engineer at Apple. Leading off our news this week, the ARRL has submitted comments on two draft recommendations approved in October by the FCC's World Radio Communication Conference Advisory Committee. With more details on the comments filed by the ARRL, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, who files this report from League Headquarters. The comments focus on draft recommendations for World Radio Communication Conference 2023. Agenda item 1.2 will consider the identification of frequencies in the 3.3 to 3.4 gigahertz and 10.0 to 10.5 gigahertz bands, among others, for international mobile telecommunications, including possible additional allocations to the mobile service on a primary basis. ARRL urged no change to the 3.3 to 3.4 gigahertz and 10.0 to 10.5 gigahertz amateur allocations. Radio amateurs make substantial use of both bands, ARRL said in its comments. They have conducted experiments and designed systems that protect primary users. The lack of interference complaints is evidence that they have been successful in doing so. In this manner, new spectrum horizons are explored and new techniques are developed that put spectrum to productive use that otherwise would represent lost opportunities and waste of the natural resource. End quote. ARRL said it wanted to reaffirm that these secondary allocations continue to be important and useful and that WRC 23 should not consider changing either secondary allocation. Sharing between primary users and secondary amateur radio users has been highly successful and the U.S. domestic table reflected the international allocations until this year, the ARRL said. In September, however, the FCC adopted an order to delete the secondary amateur and amateur satellite allocations in the 3.3 to 3.5 gigahertz band. Amateur radio operations may continue on a secondary basis subject to decisions to be made on issues raised in a further notice of proposed rulemaking in the proceeding, which is WT Docket 19348. ARRL maintained that amateur radio should remain secondary in the international allocations at 3.3 to 3.4 gigahertz until more is known about the technical characteristics of equipment that will be used by the new services and the extent of geographic buildout. 
With regard to 10.0 to 10.5 gigahertz, the ARRL noted that it has been used for many amateur terrestrial experiments and tests that have helped to develop the technical characteristics of the band. The band also is heavily used throughout much of the world as a downlink for the Qatari amateur satellite East Hale 2 QO100. ARRL noted that radio amateurs utilizing the secondary spectrum at 3.3 to 3.4 gigahertz and 10.0 to 10.5 gigahertz have developed and honed their equipment and capabilities to share with existing services. The amateur service has earned its reputation for making careful and non-preclusive use of its secondary allocations and will continue to do so, the ARRL concluded. Therefore, we respectfully request that the amateur service and amateur satellite service be continued as secondary services in the above bands. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. As Hurricane Eta increased to a major Category 4 hurricane with sustained winds of 140 miles per hour on track to landfall along the Nicaraguan coast, WX4NHC at the National Hurricane Center activated, monitoring 14.325 MHz and 7.268 MHz, the frequencies used by the Hurricane WatchNet, as well as the VoiceOver IP Hurricane Net, WindLink, APRS, and other modes. As of Tuesday evening, ETA was not threatening the U.S. mainland, and the Hurricane Watch Net had not announced any activation plans, but was at Level 3 alert level. As of 2100 UTC on Tuesday, the eyewall of what the National Hurricane Center is calling extremely dangerous Hurricane ETA was making landfall just south of Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua. The National Hurricane Center warned of a life-threatening storm surge, catastrophic winds, flash flooding, and landslides across portions of Central America. ETA was moving to the west at a rather sluggish 3 miles per hour. The NHC said ETA was forecast to move farther inland over northern Nicaragua through Wednesday morning and then move across central Honduras by Thursday morning. This will be another historic hurricane to hit this area during what has been an historic active season, said Assistant Amateur Radio Coordinator Julio Ripoll, WD4R, at the National Hurricane Center. Ripoll asked stations to relay any reports from stations or ships at sea in the affected area with or without weather data for use by National Hurricane Center forecasters. The National Hurricane Center appreciates all the surface reports from the affected area during hurricanes as they fill in gaps of not just weather data, but also give them real-time, first-person perspective of what is actually happening on the ground, Rapal said. The International Radio Union Region 2 Executive Committee held its fourth meeting of the year via Zoom in three parts to replace an in-person meeting not possible due to the pandemic. Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, is here with the details in this report filed from League Headquarters. In the first session on October 21st, Region 2 President Ramon Santoyo 
XE1KK, reviewed the year since the October 2019 Lima General Assembly, highlighting the new initiatives Region 2 has undertaken. These included the appointment of a youth liaison and the introduction of workshops, as well as the work of the Band Planning Committee to coordinate with Regions 1 and 3 on a number of issues. Secretary George Gorsline, VE3YV, presented a proposed 2021 strategic plan for discussion. Session 2 on October 24th was Coordinators Day. Each Region 2 coordinator was invited to give a presentation on their function and recent activities. The four-hour session reviewed the breadth of amateur radio activities in Region 2. The presentations will be posted on the IARU Region 2 website. Region 2 also took part in a Futures Committee, which will develop a strategy and plans for updating the IARU organization to be more effective in dealing with the challenges of rapidly evolving telecommunications ecosystem, an IARU Region 2 news release said. Session 2 is October 24th, which is Coordinator's Day. The third and final session, on October 28th, continued the discussion on planning and budget for fiscal year 2021. The pandemic has created considerable disruption this year, and how long that may be continuing is uncertain, an executive committee news release said. Well, these challenges are also the opportunities created by the rapid acceptance of virtual meetings for improved outreach to broaden participation by members' societies and all amateurs in the Americas. A special session to approve the finalized budget will be scheduled later in the year. Happy anniversary to the International Space Station, which on November 2nd marked 20 years of having a crew on board continuously. This is an occasion being celebrated by the five space agencies involved in the ISS project. NASA, Roscosmos, ESA, JAXA, and CSA. Of note is the role amateur radio has played up there through the ARIES program. Amateur radio was already part of the Expedition 1 crew, who arrived on board November 2, 2000. Commander William Shepard, KD-5GSL, Soyuz Commander Yuri Gizensko, and Flight Engineer Sergei Kirikov, U-5MIR. The Radio Amateurs of Canada Board of Directors is pleased to announce that Brent Taylor, VY2HF, has been appointed as a trustee for the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame. Brent lives in Stratford, Prince Edward Island, with his wife Janice. He will be representing the province of Prince Edward Island for a three-year term from September 2020 until September 2023. Brent replaces Ella McCormick, VE1PEI, who served on the board from 2015 to July of 2020. The RAC Board and the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame Board of Trustees extend sincere appreciation to Ella for her dedication and contributions to the board evaluation process over the years. We wish her all the best of success in her future endeavors. Brent Taylor, VY2HF, was first licensed in 1984 as VE1APG and received his partial HF privileges six months later after demonstrating successful CW operation. One year later, he passed his advanced examination he obtained the call VE1JH and was known by the call for over 20 years. He then moved from New Brunswick to Prince Edward Island in 2007 and acquired the call VY2HF. Brent believes strongly in supporting amateur radio organizations. He is past president of the Fredericton Amateur Radio Club and the New Brunswick Amateur Radio Association. 
He was also involved with the Canadian Amateur Radio Federation and the Canadian Radio Relay League before the merger into Radio Amateurs of Canada. He is a member of RAC, the Charlottetown Amateur Radio Club, the International Repeater Group, the American Radio Relay League, the Radio Society of Great Britain, AMSAT, the National Radio Club, and the Canadian International DX Club. Brent works for the Federal Department of Veterans Affairs as the acting manager of the department's business systems unit with responsibility over the database that holds the department's veteran and client information. Prior to that, he was a member of the Veterans Review and Appeal Board for 10 years and previously worked as an educator, radio broadcaster, newspaper columnist, and served one term as a member of the New Brunswick Legislative Assembly. I am very pleased to be invited to join the Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame Board of Trustees as a representative from Prince Edward Island. I believe I have a good sense of the kinds of achievements that would be worthy of Canadian Amateur Radio Hall of Fame recognition. I have had some very capable and generous Elmers over the years and have interacted with a wide range of amateurs from all walks of life. IEEE Region 1 has selected Ulrich Rode and one UL as the recipient of the 2020 IEEE Region 1 Technological Innovation Award. The selection was made by the Region 1 Awards and Recognition Committee and approved by the Region 1 Board of Governors. The award recognizes pioneering research and leadership in signal processing, the Technological Innovation, Industry or Government Award cites significant patents, discovery of new devices, development of applications, or exemplary contributions to industry or government, fitting Dr. Rhoda's accomplishments in our industry, end quote. A partner of Rhoda and Schwartz, Rhoda has published more than 300 scientific papers and written several books and book chapters. He holds several dozen patents. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. By the time you listen to this, you may already know the result of the US presidential election. As I record this, the result is not yet in. We're so used to having it all laid out before us on television and radio and social media. But wind yourself back to November the 2nd, 1920, 100 years ago, when just one transmitter transmitted the presidential election result in Pittsburgh. And what's fascinating for me is that at the time, radio hams, if they had a licence, were allowed to broadcast. On November the 2nd, 1920, Dr Frank Conrad made the first radio broadcast of a presidential election result from the station KDKA in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What became KDKA initially began broadcasting in 1916 as an amateur radio station, 8 X-Ray Kilo, licensed by the Federal Radio Commission, the predecessor to the American regulator, the FCC. At the time, amateurs were not prohibited from broadcasting. 
Frank Conrad, who was Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company's assistant chief engineer, operated the small station. A number of ham radio clubs participated in a centennial special event to commemorate that first broadcast, including the North Hills Amateur Radio Club in Pittsburgh, which operated from KDKA's 1930s transmitter site, where an original tower pier still stands. A 1920s transmitter site in Forest Hills was another operating location. In addition to the North Hills Amateur Radio Club and Skyview Radio Society, other clubs taking part included the Panzer Amateur Radio Club, Steel City Amateur Radio Club, the Wireless Association of South Hills, the Butler County Amateur Radio Public Service Group and the Washington Amateur Communications Radio Club. Pittsburghers are proud of the many firsts that took place in their city. They had the first Ferris wheel in 1893, the first polio vaccine in 1954, and yes, the first Big Mac in 1967. Yet, few other firsts can match this one. The results of the 1920 Harding-Cox presidential election were broadcast from a shack atop a Westinghouse building in Turtle Creek, and, magically, commercial radio was born. The hastily built transmitter, which used the call letters KDKA, allowed every person, even those of modest means, to access news, music and information through the radio airwaves. It paved the way for the mass broadcasting, television and global information networks that power our cellular world today. And all of this was made possible by a Pittsburgher, Frank Conrad, who had a seventh grade education, but worked his way up to be an engineer at Westinghouse Electric's East Pittsburgh Works. He pioneered new ways of transmitting voices and phonographic music across the airwaves from his garage in Wilkinsburg. Our thanks go to the ARRL and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette for this story. The ever-popular ARRL November Sweepstakes weekends are upon us, the first for CW and the other for SSB, and this year, participants will have to search out an additional section. With more details on this year's sweepstakes, we go to league headquarters, where Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, files this report. The CW event takes place... November 7th through the 9th UTC, the SSB event is from November 20th to the 23rd UTC. Stations may operate 24 of the available 30 hours. An SS operating guide package available via the sweepstakes webpage explains how to participate. This year marks the 79th sweepstakes event. The number of ARRL and Radio Amateurs of Canada sections rose to 84 earlier this year, with the addition of Prince Edward Island, Canada as a separate entity. The objective of SS, or sweeps, is to work as many stations in as many of the 84 sections as possible within 24 hours of operating. The number of sections worked is a score multiplier, and working all of them, a clean sweep in sweepstakes terminology, is the goal of many SS aficionados. Now here's the good part, you don't need a big station to have fun in sweepstakes. ARRL November Sweepstakes is the oldest domestic radio sport event, the first was in 1930, and the SS Contest Exchange has deep roots in message handling protocol. In sweepstakes, stations exchange a serial number, operating category or precedence, call sign, check, the last two digits of the year of first license for either operator or station, 
and your section. Details are at www.arrl.org forward slash sweepstakes. Clubs or public service teams that are considering participating in sweepstakes will find the guide to be a useful source for information. This year marks the 79th sweepstakes event, which attracts more than 3,000 entries each fall for both weekends. Some multipliers are rarer and or harder to work, and these can vary from year to year. For many years, the most difficult sweepstakes multiplier was considered to be Northern Territories in Canada, where J. Allen, VY1JA, and Yukon Territory was often the only station available. Allen has stepped back from amateur radio, however, owing to health issues. Making a clean sweep also requires working Alaska and Hawaii, or another station in the Pacific section, as well as Newfoundland and Labrador, and Prince Edward Island in the other direction. On the rarer side, finding and working stations in Alberta, North Dakota, Northern New York, U.S. Virgin Islands, Wyoming, and Delaware has proven vexing for some sweepstakes operators. Nonetheless, even stations with modest equipment and antennas can enjoy success. Many stations like to operate in the QRP category, which is output of 5 watts or less, although that challenge has been more daunting in the lower rungs of the solar cycle. The Sweepstakes Operating Guide package, available for download, includes all rules and examples of log formatting. The deadline to submit CW entries is November 16th. The deadline to submit phone entries is November 29th. Direct questions to the ARRL Contest Program. There are hams who enjoy vintage rigs and antique straight keys, like myself. But how about hams who appreciate historic publications about radio? Aeolian Rosu, Y-O-3-D-A-C, slash V-A-3-I-U-L, is an accomplished QRP contester in Romania who loves home brew in addition to QRP operating. He's one of those enthusiasts, and now he's sharing free downloadable PDFs of some old books about radio that date back as much as 100 years. The titles include the Wireless Experimenter's Manual by E. Boucher, published in 1920, and Radio Miracle of the 20th Century by F. Dinker and J. Lewis, published in 1922. He also has a collection of old radio magazines in downloadable format, publications such as the Archive Collection of Radio Times, dating to 1923, and the Wireless Constructor from 1926. There's even a General Electric Handbook on Sideband, first published in 1961. They're all there, and for the curious as well as the collector, point your digital device on the web to www.qsl.net slash va3iul slash files slash old underscore radio underscore frequency underscore books dot atm. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio. And now, This Week in Amateur Radio is privileged to present an interview with Hudson Division Manager Rhea Jaram, N2RJ, which was recently conducted by Eric Guth from the QSO Today podcast, who we thank for the use of the interview. Rhea Jaram, N2RJ, discovered amateur radio in her native Caribbean island of Trinidad back in the 90s. 
As an immigrant to the United States, Rhea pursued a degree in electronic engineering and great ham radio mentors. Now an electronic security professional, mother, active ham radio operator and contester, Rhea was recently elected the ARRL Hudson Division Director. N2RJ tells her story and the issues that interest her in this QSO today. N2RJ, this is Eric for Z1UG. Are you there, Rhea? Hi, Eric for Z1UG. This is N2RJ. How are you? I'm fine, Rhea. Thanks for joining me on the QSO Today podcast. Can we start at the beginning of your ham radio story? When and how did it start for you? Well, the very beginning, sometimes people have a long interest before they get into amateur radio. They're interested in other things that drive them to amateur radio. When I was a little kid, my dad had a shortwave radio that we would listen to. So this was in my old home country of Trinidad and Tobago. I had a shortwave radio and we would listen to distant shortwave stations, the BBC, Voice of America, All India Radio, um, Radio Moscow. And that kind of drove my interest in radio and electronics. When uh, I entered secondary school, I was looking for an outlet to explore those interests. And I was very much encouraged by a teacher, uh, Mr. Tony Lemack, 9Y4 Alpha Lima. Um, He's silent key now. But he basically encouraged me to investigate amateur radio. He didn't go and say, get a license. He said, this is amateur radio. This is what we can do. Does this seem interesting to you? And he showed me a number of different things, aspects of the hobby. And then I grew into it. It took me five years to get my license, but I got hooked and I was very, um, very much involved in the culture of the hobby. So that's my story, how I got started. It's my understanding that it wasn't that easy to get your license there in Trinidad in terms of working with the bureaucracy. What happened there? Oh, there there are two things. Well, the first of all is that it's not like America, where um, I love the freedom we have here and the accessibility, but in Trinidad and Tobago, you had to take at that time the city and guilds radio amateurs exam, which is the UK, the British exam. And you paid approximately 60 pounds UK, which was about $600 Trinidad and Tobago money. And I saved up that money from my allowance and odd jobs. And you would then coordinate that with the local amateur radio society. They would have the exam twice per year. It took three months to get the results. If you failed, you have to wait probably next year because sometimes they don't hold a second exam. I passed on the first try. I was very happy that I passed on the first try. That wasn't the end. I had to go up to the... At that time, we didn't have a modernized telecommunications regulator. We had the Office of Telecommunications, which was a division of the prime minister's office. So I went up to, I, I called them up and, you know, the usual bureaucrats speak saying, yes, well, we do amateur radio licenses. You have to do this, that, and the other, bring money, bring forms filled out and make sure they fill up properly. Otherwise, we're going to make you come back again. And I said, by the way, what about the Morse code? Because I was learning Morse code too. He said, well, that's not necessary anymore. But if you want to take it, you'll take it and you'll get a, a nine Yankee four call instead of a nine Zulu four. So I actually scheduled a Morse code test because I wanted to have that nine Yankee four call. It was kind of a badge of honor for, for some people, but I felt it was an achievement for me. So I did. I went up to the office. I paid my $10 Trinidad money and taxi fare one way, went up and then only to have the officer tell me, oh, well, you're a Morse code tester. He decided that he was going to cancel today. So I'm sorry, you're going to have to take a codeless license. 
So I officially got on the air on October 31st, um, two, uh, sorry, 1997, with 9 Zulu 4 Delta Sierra. I then got rescheduled for the code test on December 11th, and I got 9 Yankee 4 Romeo Alpha Juliet. So the first QSO I've had, I took my radio. I had bought a little handheld radio, a Kenwood TH215, bought it from a local ham. I went out into the town square and nervously pressed the button, said QRZ, this is 9 Zulu 4 Delta Sierra. And then a voice, 9Y4 Fox Papa, came back and said, this is 9Y4 Fox Papa. And then I said, I just got my license. I'm just testing out. And he said, well, congratulations and welcome. That's the story. That's the missing pieces. That's That was hopefully the more exciting part. Well, I think that's an exciting story. Now, did Trinidad have a two-meter repeater? Was that what you were talking to him on? Yes. So Trinidad has had at that time three two-meter repeaters, two of them operated by the Trinidad and Tobago Amateur Radio Society. There is 147.93, which is in the northern part of the island, and which is where most people are on. There is also 146.94 on two meters. And there's a third repeater on 147.800 operated by the National Emergency Management Agency, which has not only HAMS, but also the NEMA offices. They check in from time to time. And it sounds to me, based on the frequencies that you're mentioning, that Trinidad has the Region 2 frequency plan, just like the United States of America. Yes, correct. They're actually a little more liberal than, than the United States, meaning that you know they have a few more privileges. But yes, that's correct. What is the level of licenses that were in Trinidad? Just out of curiosity, I don't think I've ever spoken to anybody that's gotten a license in Trinidad. Is there just one level of license or... Now that you've passed the Morris Code and you have a different call sign, does that give you any more privileges? So it's it's kind of murky. Back then, I was told that there's no difference in license privileges if you take code or you don't take code. So step back a bit. They, they actually, the local um, communications authority, they removed the Morse Code licensing requirement before the ITU made their um, recommendation and changed the radio regulations to remove it formally as a requirement. So Trinidad and Tobago did it on their own. I was told the main difference is that you couldn't use Morse code if you didn't pass a code test, which totally makes sense. But that was what I was told. But then other people said, no, there's no difference. It's just a call sign. You get a different call sign. So those were the license levels back then. Now I think they have a foundation license for youth, which I think might be either 9Y2 or 9Z2 two or something like that. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I, I've seen a few people say that how there's a, a lower class introductory license now. Do you get back to Trinidad and do you work DX from there? I haven't been there since 2006. Right now, obviously, we can't go due to the health situation. I want to go back sometime, hopefully for good reasons. But um, we'll have to see how this whole thing shakes out. So I haven't been there in, in a while. So other than the Kenwood Portable, what was the first rig that you had there in Trinidad before you moved to the United States? So there are a few of them. The first, that was the first VHF rig, the Kenwood Portable. I also had a Midland that I borrowed, a Midland crystal-controlled transceiver, two meters, which had crystals for some of the local repeaters. That was loaned to me by 9Y4 Sierra Papa. I didn't have a lot of money to buy equipment, to be quite honest. I bought another two meter rig from a silent key and that I installed in my first car, which was a Honda Civic. I had also been gifted a kit 
by 9Y4 alpha lima, which was an IARU single band transceiver, 20 meters. It was a kit. So the deal was that I put together the kit, I get to use it. And when I grow out of it, I give it back. So I did that and I operated, you know, CW, slow CW, because it was a straight key, no keyer. It was pretty fun. I made a lot of contacts, but mostly I found myself after that really not using too much of my own equipment. I went to friends' houses. I went to Arnold 9Y4NG. I spent a lot of time by Irvin 9Y4IBN. He not only had HF capability, but he had a WinLink node at his house. So I learned about that too. And, you know, generally that's how you, you do it in Trinidad if you don't have money for equipment. You go to, you make friends because they're only like 400 hams. So everybody knows everybody. So you go and you make friends and you operate at people's houses. You are listening to an interview with ARRL Hudson Division Director Ria Jaram and to RJ, conducted by Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, stroke WA6IGR, of QSO Today. We will return to the interview after this pause for stations on the network to identify. This is This Week in Amateur Radio. So the ham radio club there is really important. It is. It's And, you know, for a national member society, it actually operates like how local clubs in the state do. But you'll find that they're very tight-knit. And do you remember the first contacts you made out of Trinidad with the 20-meter rig? Yeah, so I, I made some contacts. One of the contacts I actually made, I think I do have K3LR in my log. I have to check whether that's from 2006, though. But I, I do remember, distinctly remember him. I have to look back in my logs. There are mostly, most of the hams we made contact in were in the southern portion of the United States, so like Florida and, you know, the Gulf Coast and such like that. Because you were working QRP mostly? Right, QRP, definitely. On 20 meters in CW. Yeah. But did ham radio play a part in the choices that you made then for your education and career? Back then, yes. So... Ham radio actually helped me a lot in my career. I did always have a fascination with computer technology because my dad had bought a Commodore 64 when I was like four or five years old. And I learned a lot about computers on that. And then, you know, in school, I learned about computers and such like that. So I took a lot of career direction from that. But ham radio has helped me be technically curious. And I use that phrase a lot, technically curious, meaning that you not only like technology, but you like it enough to go and learn as much as you can about it and to break things and to learn how to fix things when you break them. That's what amateur radio did for me. It actually took me to where I was reading a lot more books. I was reading a lot more technical books. I was reading a lot of articles from magazines. I was going to the library. So yes, so that's how it drove me. Do you think that amateur radio, in terms of creating that technical curiosity, also makes you more curious about how other things work, like mechanical things. And does it just like heighten your sense of curiosity over how just about everything works? I would not really say that much because in Trinidad and Tobago, so you have to understand, we didn't have access to a lot of things that you have in other countries. 
like in North America or Europe, we had to improvise a lot on our own. Like, for example, fixing cars. I mean, you had to know how to fix a car. No matter who you are, you had to know basics about fixing a car because it's not, you know, you could still carry a car to a shop, but it was so expensive. You had to to learn how to do it. So my dad kind of like knew a lot of that. And he taught me and, you know, my sibling, um, my brother, and he, he basically taught us that. But amateur radio made me curious mostly about electronics and technology. The other stuff I wouldn't say so much. I think that was generally a byproduct of living in a country that didn't have access to resources. Bill Mara, N2CQR, who does the Solder Smoke podcast, I think he was stationed for a while with the State Department in Haiti. And he said that when he had a problem or he needed a part, there was a guy on the corner that could wind transformers if you needed to change the windings. So did you find in Trinidad that there were a lot of people that actually knew how to recycle parts and equipment and things like that just because of the lack of new parts and equipment? Oh, yeah. That was generally one of the biggest industries in Trinidad and Tobago is recycling of old things, especially like automobiles and automobile parts. They take a lot of it from Japan and, and Asia and, and they, you know, they, they tear them down and there's a whole industry on that. But yeah, generally things, you know, you don't, I mean, today is probably different now that, that the world is more globalized, but there is a culture of you don't buy something new unless what you have is pretty much obliterated. And even then, if you could fix it, you fix it. So yes, we did. We did a lot of that. As part of that growing up there, do you have the ability to fix anything if need be, or at least make an attempt? You know, as far as I did learn, actually, that, yeah, you know, I could apply a lot of my knowledge. Even things like a washing machine or a dishwasher, I could just go. And, you know, it's really nice. You have the, how should I put it, the old country knowledge together with the new country resources where I could then go on YouTube and see a video of how to replace a pump in a dishwasher because my dishwasher failed. And then I would go on Amazon and order that pump. And instead of paying $600 to a repairman, I would do it myself and save myself that money. Even things like the screen on my phone breaks, I get another screen and do it myself. So I asked you about whether ham radio played a part in the choices that you made for education career. How were you educated after that? So after I finished high school, I kind of started working a little bit. I did a few technical courses at local college. And I didn't really have university education until I came to the States. So in Trinidad and Tobago, I really didn't, you know, have much in terms of like formal beyond high school education. I worked at an insurance company and I worked at Fujitsu after that because I gained some experience and, you know, I just generally soaked up knowledge. When I came to the U.S., I started working and I found myself kind of wanting to go a little further. So I enrolled in Polytechnic University in Brooklyn, New York, which is now NYU School of Engineering. They kind of went back and forth being NYU and not. So this was when it appears when they were not. And I did electrical engineering there in class of 07. And it was it was it was pretty good. So that that kind of strengthened my whole knowledge base. And there are things I learned in college that I would never have learned on my own. Like what, for example? Like, you know, the whole structure. So when I learned things like object-oriented programming in computers, I used to do it before. I never quite understood how it, you know, why it was important. So you learn a lot of the why it's important in college, not necessarily just how to do things. If you learn practically by yourself, you learn how to do things. If you learn a formal setting, you learn, you possibly know already how to do things. You learn why it's that way. You learn how other people do it. And you learn why it's important 
to do it a certain way. So that's what I learned. What are you doing now professionally? So professionally, I work in the financial industry. Unfortunately, um, I can't exactly say where, but I do work in the financial, but it's easy to look up. I work in the financial industry doing systems engineering. I basically develop systems to automate operating system deployment to build clusters of cloud machines, you know, using AWS and other cloud technologies. And I do generally a lot of high-end financial IT. So I know who to call the next time I have an AWS problem, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, you could. Do you think that learning amateur radio makes better engineers and software developers? You know, that's a talk I gave at IEEE, at a local IEEE group here. I definitely think it's true, but I generally find that it's not necessary, but it will definitely give you an edge. However, I think that it might have been definitely more true in times past than it is today, because today there is just so much experimentation and the spirit of amateur radio that lives on outside of the amateur radio ecosystem that it kind of is, I wouldn't say it's not necessary, but you know, amateur radio is not the only path anymore. And that's, that's good and that's bad because you know, I want us to, to be able to increase our numbers. At the same time, I, I still like the fact that the ham spirit is there. So those other communities could be like the maker community or the communities around Raspberry Pis and Arduinos and Linux and things like that, right, that are outside of amateur radio? So there are several communities. There's makers, there's hackers, technically curious people. There's a YouTube community, the YouTubers that, because I do some YouTube videos too, I find that if I want to talk about a topic, I have to go and research a topic myself and then try it out myself and I learn that way. So, yes. Now, you mentioned someplace that I read that you once had a podcast. Do you still have a podcast? I had a blog. I think I was trying to do podcasting at one time. I might have made one or two episodes and then lost interest. For anybody that doesn't know, it's a lot of work to make a podcast. Oh, yeah, I can tell. You know, actually, um, when I worked for about 10 years, I worked at a large media outlet in the city. I actually did a lot of the, the technical back-end work to support podcasting. So trust me, I know how rigorous it can get. You are listening to an interview with ARRL Hudson Division Director Ria Jaram and to RJ, conducted by Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, stroke WA6IGR, of QSO Today. We will return to the interview after this pause for stations on the network to identify. This is This Week in Amateur Radio. What's the current rig? Current rig is a Flex, of course, the Flex 6700. It's been an absolute life changer for me. In what way? So previously, I used to think of a radio as a box that sat on a desk, and you had to go in front of that box, and you can only do what's in that box with the set of knobs and controls they gave you, and you're limited to the performance in that box. Well, with the software-defined radio, the Flex, I have that box at my house, And actually, I'm considering moving it to another room out of my main workspace. So I can have it out of the way and I can run the fans full speed on the other equipment and not have it be noisy. So that's one thing. I can pick up my smartphone. I can make contacts through my own rig. I can also have performance updates and improvements when they release new software. When, 
Flex releases new software. So that's how it's been an absolute game changer for me. I saw in the video that you did for the QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo that you held up your smartphone and you had the panoramic display running on the smartphone. That was pretty clever. You said that you could use that anywhere in the world where you had an internet connection. Have you actually tried that or do you know anybody that's actually tried it where you've got a latency of 300 milliseconds? So I actually tried that from, I was in Buenos Aires, Argentina in 2017 for about a month and the latency there was was pretty high. And yeah, you know, it it worked. It worked except for the fact that the local cable company had a ton of interference issues on their, their local last mile loop. So I couldn't really have reliable internet. But when the Wi-Fi worked, it worked. So it definitely does work. It does introduce a bit of a delay. And Flex kind of has like algorithms to, you know, to to put compression on the signal so that it reduces the bandwidth requirement. But the latency, especially if you're using CW, could be a little something to get used to. And that's true for any remote system, by the way. That's certainly true. What operating modes are you then using with the Flex Radio if you're using it from a smartphone or tablet or something like that? Or could you operate CW, for example? Oh, I operate, I pretty much these days, I operate mostly CW. I do operate some phone. I find that phone is a little more difficult to operate because you have to hook up a microphone. You could use a built-in microphone, a phone, but you, you know you want to hook up a good microphone. I operate FT8, sometimes in conjunction with a computer. Although on the iPad app, you can have FT8 built in. But I, I find that you know FT8, I use it now and again, but most of our operating, I would say CW and SSB. From a smartphone, then how would you operate CW? So there are two ways to do it. One, well, there are actually three ways to do it. One of them is you can preset pre-canned messages like that. That would be like your memory keyer that you'd use when you're chasing DX or working a contest. That's one. The other one is you have a keyboard you can type on. Either you type a sentence, press enter, and it'll send it. And then you receive with the decoder between your ears. The other one is you can actually, there is like a virtual paddle where you can tap on the on the phone that says dit or da, and then you can run CW that way, although you can't do high-speed telegraphy with it. So if you were operating at the station itself, and I noticed that you have the Maestro, you have the Maestro control head for the Flex Radio? I used to have it. I I sold it because I I really didn't use it that much. I know a lot of hams like knobs. To me, knobs just kind of got in the way. But when I did have the Maestro, yeah, I use I use the Maestro with either a set of paddles or I use my computer when contesting. But I actually have a key, like a paddle, a venture paddle hooked into the front of the radio and I use that. I have a straight key as well that I would connect sometimes and, and use that for like straight straight key sentry club or I'd use that for other activities where, you know, I just want to use a straight key. Now, it's my understanding that you're interested in radio sport and contesting. In addition to DX, your presentation to the QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo was on DXing with SDR. And I guess the way that you presented it, and I'm not a DXer, but you kind of presented that's almost a contest mode as well, especially if you have pileups. How did you get into radio sport and contesting, and how far have you taken that? There are a few things. I mean, initially, the first spark started in Trinidad. Remember I said you operated your friend's stations. So one of my friends, 9Z4, Delta Zulu, Stevenson, really nice guy. And he would, you know, he would give you the shirt off his back if he had to. He invited me to operate at his house for a contest. And I did a contest, but giving out points, not really competitive. But I enjoyed the 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 idea of just making contact with stations and putting them in the logbook. So I did like that. Then 
when I came to the United States, I started to get the HF bug back in like 2006. So I was initially invited to the North Jersey DX Association by one of my mentors, Steve Mendelson, W2ML. He was absolutely phenomenal. He brought me into the NJDXA. I learned about all that DXing world had to offer and actually got a mobile setup in my car. So I went to Dayton. I purchased uh, ICOM 7000, screwdriver antenna, the automatic controller, put that in my car. And then I was looking to build up my DXCC totals. So I was reading magazines and books and it said, why don't you operate a contest? You can get DXCC in a weekend. Wow, I didn't know you could do that. So I went, I operated the IARU HF Championships and the IARU HF Championships was the first formal contest where I actually submitted a log to be scored. And actually it was a pretty nice experience because I gained maybe like 60 or 70 countries just working that contest. And that's how I got into the contest. So eventually when we moved out to where I live now, which is in Wanage Township, which is in the countryside of Northwest New Jersey, we put up the tower after fighting with the town and winning, of course, getting the tower up and then getting everything together, get on the air. I realized I was getting great signal reports. So then I saw which contests are coming up. CQ Worldwide. Okay. So I operated in CQ Worldwide and I realized that I did so well. I think I made something like 800,000 points. Which was, which was amazing for the low point of sunspot cycle. I got an invitation from, I think it might have been Glenn O'Donnell, K3 Papa Papa from Frankfurt Radio Club, who was trolling 3830 mailing lists. Because I, I think one of these contesters, I think it might have been Rich and N3W, I asked him, well, how did you know that these guys in the contest won? And then he sent me a link to 3830. I'm like, oh, this exists. You don't have to wait on a magazine. I actually, when I published, I got noticed by Frankfurt Radio Club and Frankfurt Radio Club said, come and join us and pool your scores. And, you know, we could, we could beat YCCC, you know, which is the other contest club in the Northeast. And um, yeah, that's how I got hooked. I grew into contesting. You know, I made some great friends. Unfortunately, some are silent key, which I think is an unfortunate fact of this hobby. But you meet some great friends, you get encouraged along, and that's where I am in contesting. And I really, you know, I really got hooked, and that's how I got in. The fact that people become silent keys isn't an unfortunate fact of the hobby like the hobby's hazardous. It's that the demographic tends to be older. That's what you were saying. Yeah. For the uninitiated out there, right? Right. Yeah, it's not that ham radio could be hazardous, but it's not that that results in silent keys. Sadly... It's that we're old. I've been a ham almost 50 years, so I can tell you, Rhea, we're older. We're kind of weighted towards old. Maybe you could say this, that your generation, perhaps, are more virtual. To belong to organizations around the world is actually relatively easy now. But for people that are older, they tend to be in the local ham radio clubs. Yeah, you know, and and your first comment, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, you know, you meet so many great people. The fact is, though, that, you know, you have to treasure your time with them because you don't know if they'll be gone tomorrow. And I've learned that about my, my mentors, but I, I'll make exception. One thing though, my, the mentor in, in school, he died young, he died younger. So it was just unfortunate with him. Cancer does discriminate with age, but yeah, no, that is absolutely true. It's kind of like, you know, ham radio is this, it is this worldwide fraternity. And I was told that back in the days, a lot of these hams who are older now were in it when they were teenagers 
and I heard stories of them doing their radio hobby in secret in the middle of the night and borrowing the tube from the family radio <laughs> and then putting it back and then and then um dad or mom or grandma would wonder why the, the radio isn't working as well as it did before. You are listening to an interview with ARRL Hudson Division Director Ria Jaram and to RJ, conducted by Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, stroke WA6IGR, of QSO Today. We will return to the interview after this pause for stations on the network to identify. This is This Week in Amateur Radio. We had school the next day. We were supposed to be in bed asleep. Of course, we were under the covers with the headphones on, listening to 80 meters or something like that. So that seemed to be the way it was. I'm interested in your opinion on this because I think that what I have found getting to know older ham radio operators, even as a young person, is that they had lots and lots of years of experience under their belt. So something that seemed like it was an impossible task when you first, you're a newbie in ham radio and you're trying to do it, working with an older mentor was absolutely amazing because of you learned what the right tool is and how to apply that tool and what hand to hold it in to do the job instantly and 10 times better than you could without the mentoring. What do you think about that? So, yes, I do think that if you find, and this is not a an attack on anybody, I do think that as hams, we need to be better at being more patient with newer hams. I know it's online, but when you do find an older, more experienced ham, not necessarily older in age, but older in the hobby, who can help you out and be patient and not tell you first thing, go and read the manual, who explains to you and explains to you how to get your knowledge. You know, that's invaluable. I mean, the things I learned from my mentors were absolutely priceless. And I think that, yes, you know, we need to treasure the the generation that was there before because they've lived through the harder times. They lived through when you had to largely scrounge for your equipment. I remember like Bill Pasternak saying that how he got his first radio, his, his six meter transmitter he built from an old discarded TV set. You don't really see that much uh, these days. You might see some of it, but these days the impulse is you go and, you know, you go online, you buy the cheapest radio you can find and you get on the air, you know. But these days, we, we could use a little more of that. And I'm glad that people like Bob Heil are bringing back the homebrew, you know, with the pine board and such. So, yeah, so th that advice, advice is invaluable. I get the sense that you really treasure the time that you spent with your mentors and that you may have a sense of paying it forward in their memory. Is that how you feel? You know, I absolutely do feel that way. Since I got licensed... The first thing I did was I went and I taught a licensing class and I actually got three more people licensed. Unfortunately or fortunately for me, I got the opportunity to leave the country and come to the U.S. So I couldn't teach any more licensed classes there. But I taught one the other day. I've been a VE. I've taught the AWRL MCOM courses. And I'm always there to share the knowledge. I'm always there to, to help people grow in the hobby, and even if they don't want to get licensed, big deal. As long as they're technically curious, maybe one day they will they will figure it out and figure that ham radio is a cool hobby or a cool pastime. So I absolutely do love paying it forward, and I, I spend a lot of my efforts in the hobby on doing just that. You're the ARRL Hudson Division Director. 
Why enter ham radio politics? That's a really interesting one. Again, this is the end of my friends. I mean, in 2018, some of my friends began to loudly complain about what the DAPLARO was doing. And the gory details are how I actually made up my mind to run for amateur radio. But basically, I was challenged by the incumbent director to run at a holiday party. So I said, you know what? Sure, I will do it. But it wasn't just that. It was just looking at the whole thing and realizing, you know what, maybe I could make a difference. And maybe I could take it one step further. And maybe my friends who are complaining, because they're, they're, I, I tend to respect you know, their stature in the hobby, so to speak. Those friends who are complaining, I thought, you know what, and I still do, by the way, that they had a very legitimate beef with one. So that's why I went into quote-unquote politics. I'm hoping that eventually I want us to get into a place now, especially that we have a new CEO and that is widely supported by the board, that we move ahead and get past the politics and get on with the business of keeping amateur radio and in terms of keeping it, period, one, and two, enhancing it and growing it instead of just where, um, well, not so much the hobby itself, but the league where the league kind of like stalled for a little bit. So I'm hoping we could pick up, put aside the politics and move on. I'm having a good a good hopeful feeling about that by the way i'm glad about that i actually have been an awr member for a lot of years and still even from israel i'm an awrl diamond club member because i think that the awrl has a very loud voice even across the world what are the responsibilities of the division director so the first primarily responsibility is a as as a member of the 15 15 directors of the 15 divisions so i'm a i'm a director basically of the corporation that's one so we hold two board meetings per year at minimum, and we take care, we advise and consent the business of the league. Of course, day-to-day operations handled by the CEO, but we basically do the governance of the league. Now, it's, it's more than that, obviously. We're a working board. We're not like the board of you know a big company. We're, we're very close to our members and constituents, and I take my duty a little above, above and beyond what it, are the mandatory statutory duties one, I try to be to, uh, to to have good outreach to members. So I keep in touch with them. I do videos on YouTube. I send them out regular emails. I tell them what's happening. I show up at their events. I will answer questions. I will tell them who can answer their questions. And, you know, I generally act as a sounding board and a helpful ear. And one of the other things I do, quite frankly, is be a visible face of the league in this this area because you want somebody you know you don't want people to think that they're spending fifty dollars a year to get nothing but a magazine you know they want representation which is what i want to give them in other words you'll go to amateur radio club meetings in the area as the face of the awrl and maybe answer questions give a talk yeah you know i i do a lot of talks on um awrl business i go to i used to go physically to a lot of club meetings but now, of course, a lot of them are on Zoom or video conferencing, other video conferencing. So, yeah, I do go to a lot of club meetings. Now, I noticed in my research that you submitted comments, and this is probably when you were a private individual and not a division director, that you submitted comments to the FCC on Docket 1581 regarding electronically stored personal information that the FCC has. Until before the Internet age, I think we weren't aware that lists of licensees 
from the FCC, for example, with their addresses and stuff, are actually part of the public knowledge. And that now that we're interconnected, that we can actually go to the FCC and find uh, just about any kind of information and probably any other government database about other people. What was the effect of those comments? And what do you have to say about privacy in general in terms of organizations like the FCC and sharing that with everybody? Certainly, I think QRZ exists because the FCC has a database that they publish. I do think it's a double-edged sword. I posted those comments, and actually I might have posted them outside the comment period, so they probably don't quote-unquote count. But it's a general frustration I have. I think that generally we do need to know who is behind the microphone or who is behind the bad signal in the air or who is behind a good signal so we could send them a good operator report because the FCC is not doing the enforcement it used to do. And, And that's only part of the reason, really. At the same time, there are people who do change their addresses, they change their names for various reasons. And, you know, you could probably tell what some of those are. There are people who just don't want to be followed around digitally their entire lives. And it is a very much of a concern that they have today. With that comment, I think it is a reasonable position to have the right to erase your past um, information while keeping the current one public. Of course, this is not going to be universal agreement. There are people who say to how no, everything should be out in the open. And there are people who say, no, that nobody has any business to my data but mine. But if you look at countries and, and regions like the EU, where you have like laws that give you like right to erase, erasure, where you can actually uh, remove all your data if you wanted to. And GDPR, of course, everybody knows about GDPR, working in, in the financial industry at um you know, a company that operates primarily in Europe, I can tell you that GDPR is a big thing. So generally, I think today, one, it's good to have access to information, but two, I think we've kind of lost that kind of innocence where, you know, somebody just can't be private anymore, you know? And then you have you have this whole concept of doxing, where somebody will look up information on you and then publish it with intent to harm you. Or they might just do it just to be, you know, just to be malicious or just for kicks. Or with the intent to defraud you. That's exactly true. You are listening to an interview with ARRL Hudson Division Director Ria Jaram and to RJ, conducted by Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, stroke WA6IGR, of QSO Today. We will return to the interview after this pause for stations on the network to identify. This is This Week in Amateur Radio. Well, I think one of the interesting things about GDPR, because obviously the GDPR rules in Europe, if people aren't aware of them, are incredibly strict. Violations, even by a small company holding database information of Europeans, can be millions of dollars worth of fines. It's my understanding just this week that due to GDPR and due to the EU's interest in Facebook, for example, that Facebook actually may stop operating in the EU as a result of GDPR compliance, or they might become a paid service in the EU, in which case they won't have any private information of European individuals. I guess that's what we have coming up. Yeah, you know, it's. Um, I, I think a lot of GDPR makes sense because I, I live and breathe it in a lot of ways. But 
I think sometimes it really does have a lot of collateral damage and, and unwanted consequences. All of that will likely be hashed out. Like you said, Facebook, some people might herald the destruction of Facebook in Europe. Some people might be saddened. I think the people that use it as a way to connect to distant family members, for example, I think they may be the ones that miss it the most, other than the people that buy the services from Facebook for advertising, for example. And I think in the end, what will actually happen is that the same thing that probably happened with TikTok in the US, where you have the president threatening to, to ban TikTok and actually put an executive order to ban TikTok and then it was halted by a judge, there might be some sort of compromise that comes or some way around the rules. So I don't think it's dead just yet. When you did your presentation for the QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo, there was a very patient young man sitting behind you. It looked like he was engaged in something else, but still being patient. What kind of impact has amateur radio had on your family life? And is that young man, does he have any interest in ham radio? So it's, it's, it's very interesting. My kids are very interested in tech. My son, he spends a lot of time on computer tech. But actually, he enjoys a lot of nostalgia with older operating systems. So he plays a game called Progress Bar 95, which basically is a simulation of Windows 95, except you're trying to press collect blocks in a Windows 95 progress bar. But he's obsessed with this. As far as ham radio goes, he and his two sisters, so they're two siblings that weren't in picture. They like the tech. They like ham radio. They love when I get on the air. They sometimes sit with me and talk. I try to, well, not try to, I have to observe the the third-party rules, of course. You know, I try to get them involved. I'm trying to get them to study. They're almost 10 years old, so they're a little busy in terms of their schoolwork. But in between, we try. And I'm hoping to get them licensed soon. This seems to be that that would be a good activity to do if you're social distancing from home anyway. They may be home learning on Zoom. They used to be virtual school up until the end of the last school year. But our school is a private school, so they have smaller classes, and they really spaced out the classes so they're able to actually go physically to school. Well, that's very cool that, that, that they're actually in school during this time. Okay, well, so it sounds to me that you're going to have to do a extracurricular amateur radio class at the private school. I've been trying to do that. So the private school, it's a, it's a parochial school. So I actually um, volunteer at the, the school slash church uh, doing their technology on the video side. So I run, I run all their live streams and all the video production. I might talk to the pastor and see if he's interested in, in starting a ham radio club. That's one of my goals. I interviewed somebody last night who actually, in the 60s and 50s parochial schools, many of them actually had amateur radio clubs with active faculty who were amateur radio operators. So you could actually create a new trend. Yeah, so there is there is one in the same town, actually. That's a high school. So they're in elementary. That school's an elementary slash middle school. But the high school has a an actually functioning amateur radio club run by Joel Wagner and 2IAG. They're pretty good. Yeah, I, I would definitely say it's possible. I'll probably look to him for advice since he's local. What do you think is the greatest challenge facing amateur radio now? Is there just one? Well, you can certainly say more than one. All right. So our biggest challenge right now, I mean, this is, you know, it's the fact that I think we definitely have to do something about the future long-term appeal of the hobby because technology is outpacing us. And you have threats from, well, as in actual threats from 5G and, and other thing that will take our spectrum, one, and two, that will move people away from why is ham radio even necessary. So I think we need to definitely move the hobby to a point where 
ham radio still has something unique to offer. Because uh, I'll go back to Joel um, Wagner and to IAG. When, when I was regularly talking to him in Amateur Radio Club, he told me, he said, ham radio was popular back in his day because it was a great free way to communicate. And you don't have that anymore because you have the internet. Well, yes. So we have to have something to distinguish ourselves. I think that's our biggest thing. I mean, I would, I would say something obvious, like, you know, we're going to be aging out. I don't think that's necessarily a big problem that we're going to be aging out because I see a lot of young people getting licensed, but they're getting interested in different things. I think maybe one of the problems that we might have is that we have a hard time telling people that I'm now telling people that ham radio is like a big circus. You've got your three rings in the middle. You've got DX, you've got rag chewing, and you've got contesting, right, in the middle rings. But we have a thousand sideshows. And we don't really talk about those thousand sideshows in such a way for people that look at ham radio that they see that it's actually this huge thing. How would we say that to the non-initiated who are even surprised now that ham radio still exists? I do think that we, we definitely need to push, not push, push is a bad word. We definitely need to highlight our technical credentials. And like you said, we are a three-ring circus DXing, contesting, and rag chewing or some other thing. And we don't show people balloon flights. We don't show people satellites. We don't show people the space station. You know, there was a commercial the other day I saw that I actually sent it on the, to the AWRL board. Somebody on Reddit posted it where there was this little boy in Africa somewhere saying, Earth to space station. Can you hear me? And then there was, um, sorry, I'm tearing up a little bit. There was this um, astronaut on the space station. Yes, loud and clear. Can you speak Japanese? So there, there are a number of takeaways from that. So it's not necessarily that we have to abandon DXing. First of all, we have to highlight our things other than DXing, contesting, and the traditional amateur radio activities. But the other thing is that even these traditional activities have benefits beyond what you see on the surface. So you see contesting and DXing primarily as a game of RF, right? You, you see who has the biggest, baddest signal, who can beat everybody in the pileups, okay? I'm guilty of that sometimes too. But then you, you see it as, you know, well, I didn't know this island existed. I didn't know that island existed. And some groups like Intrepid DX and such have been doing things like they've been bringing scientific payloads to their de-expeditions. Absolutely cool. We need to be doing more of that. So that, that's how I think ham radio could definitely improve upon itself. Do you think that's the role of the ARRL, at least in America, to actually maybe make those either PSAs or 30-second 60-second commercials? I want to see the ARRL doing it. I don't think it's solely the role of ARRL. I think there is a big community. There are a lot of ham radio YouTubers. You have like Ham Radio Crash Course and Ham Radio 2.0, and, and these guys are making fantastic videos, Dave Kassler and such. But I don't think it's necessarily only the ARRL. I think the ARRL should have a hand in it. I do think that the ARRL needs to support everybody who's doing it, though. I think that's more of our role. You are listening to an interview with ARRL Hudson Division Director Rhea Jaram and 2RJ, conducted by Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, stroke WA6IGR, of QSO Today. We will return for final thoughts after this pause for stations on the network to identify. You are listening to This Week in Amateur Radio. You know, I ask a question like that thinking that people still watch commercial television. 
And I guess maybe they do on the one hand, although I don't know anybody who does from the standpoint that like we did as kids growing up in America where there were three networks. I'm thinking as you're answering the question that, well, where would you put those commercials? Because everybody's now siloed into smaller silos. So where would you put those that somebody actually might see them? So these days, so like I mentioned, I worked 10 years in media and I got a good glimpse of what the industry does. I definitely think that our attention spans have gotten shorter. So we're not, we're not going to be placing these on, you know, like a big TV show. I think we have to produce clips that'll go viral. We need to, to have something short that goes viral and then that gets people to click and look. So I think the AWRL has not been doing such as good a job as it can with social media. So we need to definitely increase our presence. And this is something I've discussed with the new CEO. I'd imagine you have him on sometime, hopefully. But, you know, he's very enthusiastic about this. And I'm really happy about that. And full disclosure, it's one of the big reasons I supported him for his position. I think that's definitely where we got to go. Although I guess, as you said, with the YouTubers and Dave and a lot of people who are making videos on YouTube, putting a certain amount of time just for a spot, we put it on our Facebook page or our Twitter feed or whatever, that there's a lot of people that follow us, you know, it might be friends and family who are not into ham radio just because they happen to follow us. That actually might be the way to kind of virally show the handy talkie and antenna pointed at the space station. Nobody knows, who knows at this moment that there's a repeater on board of the space station allowing people to talk around the world. Yeah, a lot of people think that how the link between the space station and the ground is some NASA secret internet you know, signal, when in fact that when we do the school contacts, it's ham radio. I think we need to put to promote that a little more. My point more, though, was, was along the line of if the AWRL is producing something, that we could definitely have the uh, YouTubers do their thing, and they will keep doing their thing, of course, but I do think the AWRL also needs to be more active and you know, not only pr- promote content, but also produce its own. Right, branded content. And that there's a national organization in America that actually supports ham radio. Correct, yes. That's 100 years old. 105, six years. Yeah, amazing. Do you have advice for newer returning hams to the hobby? So my advice for newer returning hams, don't get stuck in a box. Don't think that ham radio is just one thing. Don't think that ham radio are the two guys on a repeater who talk to each other and don't bring you into their conversation or who probably do talk to you. Explore, find something different. You might find something that you'll get hooked on. At the same time, it's okay to become disinterested now and again, but if you do become disinterested, at least renew the license. It's free of charge for now, and we're hoping we keep it free of charge. Keep the license. Who knows? You might pick it up later on. And that's my advice generally. You know, one, keep trying new things. And two, even if your interest drops off, don't just drop out completely because you might find it easier later on to pick it back up. Well, I think that's great advice. It's the first time I've had that advice, but I think that's a great idea. Rhea, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the QSO Today podcast. With that, I want to wish you 73, and I'm sure that we'll talk again. Thank you, Eric. It was an honor, and 73 to you as well. I hope that you enjoyed this QSO with Rhea. Please be sure to check out the show notes that include links and information about the topics that we discussed. Go to www.qsotoday.com and put an N2RJ in the search box at the top of the page. Until next time, this is Eric for Z1UG 73. 
You have been listening to an interview with ARRL Hudson Division Director Rhea Jaram and 2RJ, conducted by Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, stroke WA6IGR, of the QSO Today podcast, who we thank for the use of this interview. Be sure and visit the website for the QSO Amateur Radio podcast at www.qsotoday.com. The UK regulator, Ofcom, was recently asked, in a Freedom of Information request, to provide a list of available and reserved amateur radio call signs. Ofcom was also asked to provide information about which call signs were reserved or unreserved, and when it might be possible to re-register reserved call signs. On October the 29th, Ofcom responded with an Excel spreadsheet with a list of call signs, marking them reserved or available, and in some instances, the license expiry date and the date that the call signs will become available for potential reissue. The Freedom of Information request was made via whatdotheyknow.com, and there's a link to the call sign spreadsheet they provided, which you can find at www.southgatearc.org, and then just search for the story entitled Available and Reserved UK Amateur Radio Call Signs. On Long Island, New York, where the pandemic hit hard, members of the Radio Central Amateur Radio Club, W2RC, decided that medical responders and their support teams needed a show of support for their service. Club took up a collection from among us 40 members for a donation to the local hospital, St. Charles Hospital in Port Jefferson. In an article posted in the QRZ form, the club's president, Neil Heft, KC2KY, says, We wanted to do something more than just putting up a thank you sign. A $1,000 donation was presented recently to the hospital in recognition of the hard work by its doctors, nurses, security officers, medical support staff, and facility personnel. ARRL Pacific Division Director Jim Teamstra, K6JAT of Oakland, California, died on October 30th, an ARRL Life member. He was 65. Teamster was AWRL Pacific Division Vice Director from 2009 through 2017, sitting on the Administration and Finance and Programs and Services Committees of the Board. He became AWRL Pacific Division Director in January 2018. He was a member of the Administration and Finance Committee, the Legal Structure Review Committee, Chair of the Legislative Advocacy Committee, and an advisor to the Amateur Radio Legal Defense and Assistance Committee, among other board assignments, Primarily a contester and DXer, Teamstra had been a DXpedition member and had long been involved in the public service aspects of the hobby. Teamster retired in 2018 as a federal practitioner in the private practice of law. Pacific Division Vice Director Kristen McIntyre, K6WX, will succeed Teamstra. Here is the current list of upcoming AWRL Learning Network webinars. You can visit the ARRL Learning Network website to register for upcoming sessions and to view previously recorded sessions. The following schedule is subject to change. Amateur Radio's role at the Boston Marathon bombing, hosted by Steve Schwarm, W3EVE. Amateur Radio has played a significant role in public service communications for the Boston Marathon for several decades. That role was put to the test in 2013 when two bombs were exploded near the finish line. This presentation will describe the role that ham radio played at the marathon and how that role changed during the bombing. This webinar is scheduled for Tuesday, December 8th, 2020, 
at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or 1800 UTC. Learn and have fun with Morse code, hosted by Howard Bernstein, WB2UZE, and Jim Kreitz, W6JIM. Morse code or CW is a popular ham radio operating mode. Learning CWs does not have to be an arduous or lonely experience. Learn, practice, and enjoy CW with the methods used by the Long Island CW Club. This webinar is scheduled for Thursday, December 7, 2020 at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, that's 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or 0100 UTC on Friday, December 18th. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Leo Laporte here, your tech guy. The case of the malicious PDF next. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Leo, this is rather strange. A guy came out to give me an estimate for a new furnace. Reputable company. They just installed a new water heater. He sent me an email with a PDF of the quote for the installation. After I downloaded it, my Norton antivirus said that a script that could enable malware had been removed from the PDF. I, I guess it was sanitizing it. My question is, was the sender maliciously responsible for placing the script on the PDF? And if, if that's the case, I, I guess I should bring it to the company as well as him. Or could there be an innocent explanation for this? Thanks for any insight. There are a lot of explanations for this, so I'll give you the whole realm of possibilities here. I can't tell you for sure what happened, but here's some of the things that could have happened. First, uh, explanation for those of you who don't know, it's a PDF stands for Portable Document Format. It was a document format originally created by Adobe, but it's now kind of open and available, and there are lots of PDF creation tools and PDF reading tools. The advantage of a PDF, it's really good for things like invoices, tax returns, any kind of form, because you can create it and preserve the layout. Essentially, unlike a Word document, a word processing document, it's a picture of the document. So with anything with fields and forms and layout, it's going to look exactly like it looks on your computer, on everybody else's computer. That's the portability part. It can be taken anywhere and it will look the same. PDFs have additional format uh, or features, rather. You Sometimes there are forms that you can fill out, stamp your signature on it, things like that. But it's often used as kind of, and I think it's better to use, frankly, than, say, a Microsoft Word document for sending out things like invoices. You're pre you can be pretty sure that no matter what kind of computer, even on a phone that your customer's using, they can read PDFs. For a long time, you had to download a PDF reader. In most cases, it was Adobe's Acrobat reader on your Windows machine to read PDFs. That's not even true anymore. Um, Microsoft's Edge browser, which is available on all modern PCs, uh, in fact, it comes with Windows 10 now, can easily open read PDFs. On the Macintosh 
preview, which comes with every Mac, can read PDFs. Most phones can read PDFs. So this is a, a good format because almost everybody can read it. PDFs can be malicious. In fact, I'm going to talk about how a data file of any kind can be malicious. A bad guy to infect your computer, whether it's with ransomware, a Trojan horse, malware, um, even just a keystroke logger, has to get you to run a program. Those are programs. They have to get you to run that program to install it and make the changes to the operating system so that it loads up every time you boot the computer up. So a lot of times what hackers are up to is kind of tricking you into running programs. Data files in their purest form are not programs. They cannot infect you. But there is a path to infection, and there's, and I'll, I'll explain those. One of the reasons I don't like to use Microsoft Office documents when I'm sending attachments is because Excel, Word, they can contain scripts, macros. Most antiviruses are smart enough, and in fact, Word and Excel are smart enough to say, hey, there's a macro attached to this document. Make sure it's safe before you run it. In many cases, won't run it at all. And that's because... Word macro viruses are a very early kind of virus and, and were a real problem. So sometimes data files can run programs. Most of the time, though, data files are benign. They're just data. You're a photo in a JPEG form or a PDF document. In theory, they shouldn't execute anything. The problem is the program that's used to run or view that data file. We call them interpreters. So Adobe Acrobat interprets PDF files. And the problem is, Acrobat's a good example, there have been numerous flaws discovered in Acrobat that allow a maliciously created PDF file to infect your computer. It takes advantage of the fact that Acrobat is a program, Reader is a program, and the PDF file can give that program instructions which it then interprets and runs and infects your computer. So, in general, interpreters are potentially risky, and they have to, we have to be very carefully crafted so as not to allow a data file to infect them. Similarly, a JPEG by itself is harmless, but if you had a JPEG viewing program, and this has happened as well, that had a flaw in it, and the bad guys knew what that flaw was, they could craft a malicious JPEG, a malicious image file, that by itself is harmless, but when read with that particular buggy program, could become malicious. So it's not really the case that you can say data files are safe. They're safe as long as the programs used to interpret them, to display them, are, are, are not buggy. So that's why it's always important to keep everything up to date on your computer, especially these ca this category of programs like Adobe Reader. Very important. So is it possible that you got sent a malicious PDF? Yes, it is. Is it likely? No, it's not. <laughs> and this is part of the problem I have with antiviruses. There's two problems, and we've talked about false negatives and false positives in other contexts before, but that's a problem with antivirus programs. Sometimes, often, they miss a virus. They, they, they let a virus through, a false negative, and it infects your computer even though you're running an antivirus. Sometimes, in fact, maybe even just as often, they identify something that is not malicious as malicious. In this case, I think it's probable that Norton saw the PDF, understood the potential problems with the PDF, and either told you that they fixed it or 
Maybe they did, in fact, find something. This message that you got is interesting to me. A script that could enable malware has been removed. A PDF is, in a way, a script. What a PDF stores is programs, a program that displays the page. The program used to be in PostScript, then Display PostScript, and now it's in its own kind of format. But it's actually a program. So it is conceivable that a PDF, when executed improperly by a program that allows it, could have a malware, as I mentioned. By itself, though, it doesn't. And I'm not sure what Norton saw. It's much more likely, in in other words, that this was a false positive, that the file was fine. It's certainly not enough evidence to get this guy in trouble. Is it possible he sent you completely innocently a malformed PDF? Absolutely. His system could be infected. Perhaps the PDF creation tool that he used to make that invoice, maybe Acrobat Distiller or some other program, Cute PDF or... You know, there are lots of them, Foxit Pro. Maybe those programs had a bug and a bad guy got on his system and modified those programs so that they would create malicious PDFs. That's also possible. And the problem is I can't tell you exactly what happened. And this is why, I, in general, I don't recommend any viruses on personal computers, you know, as a personal thing. Norton saw it, but you're running Windows 10. Did Windows Defender see it? No, right? You didn't get two warnings. Um, You might run that attachment. It's possible it's been modified now, but if you could download another copy from your mail provider and run it through another antivirus program, there are a lot of online ones, Trend Micro, for instance, and, and get a second opinion, that might be useful. I often see antivirus programs falsely tag files as dangerous. I can't say for sure that something bad didn't happen, but I also can't say for sure that something bad did happen. Do you know what I'm saying? There's just not enough evidence. I I think it's unlikely the chain of uh, events that would lead to this happening for real and really be a threat to you are somewhat unlikely. He would have to be hacked. He would have had to create a malicious PDF, which he would have then sent to you. It was only detected by Norton, not by anything else. And then Norton says, very conveniently, oh, don't worry, I removed it. All of that seems unlikely. It's probably the case that you didn't get bit. And this is exactly why you've heard me say many times, I'm not crazy about antivirus programs because of the false positive, false negative aspect. They slow your computer down. Norton's notorious for that. They're very heavyweight. They can cause more problems than they solve. They can even have flaws themselves that allow bad guys to get into your system. So this is an example of perhaps... Norton being overcautious or identifying something wrong. But again, I can't promise you that there wasn't a malicious PDF. There's really no way to know unless you, you know, got that PDF again and maybe sent it to some people or tried some other antiviruses against it. Try to get a second or third or fourth opinion if you can. If only one antivirus flags something as as malicious, then chances are really good that's a false positive. Hey, Greg, it's a great question, and at least it gives us a chance to kind of think a little bit about how we can get infected by data files. Uh, In general, that's not because the data file itself has an infection or has it could be maliciously crafted, but by itself it's harmless unless you've got a program, the interpreting program, that's going to take that file and turn it into something dangerous. So you probably weren't at risk anyway, presuming that you view PDFs as something that's been kept up to date. If you use Adobe Reader, 
that's one you really got to keep up to date. In fact, it's one I would get rid of. It had so many problems for so many years. Just use Edge. Microsoft's keeping that up to date. View it in Gmail's uh, preview or Google Docs PDF reader. Even if it's malicious, that will be safe. That's why, by the way, I always say don't send attachments. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment to explain why real hams can't drive down Weaver Street. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Amateur Archives. I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY. Three memorable events occurred in my life in 1971. I turned 18, I graduated from high school, and I passed my general. To celebrate, I bought myself an old VW bus and installed radios for 11, 10, 6, and 2 meters. Thus began my lifelong love of mobile operations. I soon encountered a problem. The VW bus was 76 inches tall. With four antennas on the roof, my total height was 136 inches, or 11 feet 4 inches. I had a park on the street, as the driveway at my parents' house had an 8-foot clearance by the back door. Parking garages were now off-limits. Still, except for these two restrictions... I had no problems in getting around. My hometown, Buffalo, New York, is very flat and is laid out in a combination of a spoke and grid pattern. Clearances under railroad bridges were at least 12 feet. No street was off limits. Even when I upgraded to a Ford Econoline van, 80 inches tall, my overall height was only 11 feet 8 inches, low enough to make it under any bridge. I had a ball mobile working hundreds of stations across town and across the world. When I moved to Albany, New York in the early 80s, however, I ran into trouble. Unlike Buffalo, the Capital District of New York is not centralized. It consists of three medium-sized cities and half a dozen smaller cities and villages hemmed in by hills, valleys, and two major rivers. It is also a far older area than Buffalo, filled with densely populated narrow streets that climb steep hills and twist and turn through small valleys. In many areas, there was simply no room to allow for adequate clearances under bridges. As a result, there are over 10 bridges with clearances less than 11 feet. One is just three blocks from my office. I had a choice, put on shorter antennas or learn alternate routes. I kept the antennas, of course. It wasn't hard to find other streets, and soon I thought I had the problem solved. Until I came to Weaver Street. I was living in Rotterdam, a suburb of Schenectady. According to the map, the shortest distance from point A, my house, 
to point B, downtown Schenectady, was down Weaver Street. I set out one day on a trip downtown. I never made it. I turned onto Weaver Street. One hundred feet later, I saw the sign and the bridge. The clearance, eight feet, nine inches. I came to a complete stop, with cars honking behind me. I couldn't believe it. Eight feet, nine inches on a major street? I made a U-turn and went home. I looked at the Ford van and I asked myself, are these antennas really worth it? I got in the van, drove around, and worked Scotland and the Virgin Islands repeater on 10-meter FM, came home and said, yes. And so I avoided Weaver Street. I eventually traded the van in for a Ford Escort wagon. The wagon was only 56 inches tall, but my problem actually became worse. For, at the same time I got the Escort, I also bought an ICOM 725 HF mobile rig and ham sticks for 75 through 10 meters. The ham sticks were 8 feet tall. With a 4-inch spring, my total height was now 13 feet. Dozens of streets were now off-limits, not just because of low bridges, but also because of trees and even some cable or power lines. My parents had also moved to the Albany area, but, shades of 1971, I couldn't pull in their driveway thanks to a cable line only 11 feet high. Believe it or not, that wasn't the worst. The Escort was equipped with the ICOM HF rig, a 6-meter sideband radio, a dual-band mobile unit, a 10-meter FM rig, and a CB radio. How did I fit all of these in an Escort? Simple. I turned the front passenger seat into a radio platform. My two kids were young at the time, and they rode in the back seat. When we went out as a family, we took my wife's minivan. On the rare occasions we had to use my car, the wife and kids were crammed into the back of the Escort while the radios rode shotgun. Yes, they complained, but I had 37 states and 31 countries logged. The radios and antennas stayed. But times change and life evolves. The ICOM developed a transmit problem, the tri-mag mount corroded, the kids were growing, and the escort was old. I traded in the old wife for a newer, vastly improved model, and got a great deal, and the escort for a Hyundai. The new car was smaller than the Escort and had only two doors. For a change of pace, I decided on a radically different approach. The radio presence in the Hyundai would be minimal. A dual-band HT and a small CB. Both easily fit in the center console. A three-foot mag mount on the trunk and a dual-band glass mount were the only antennas. My new height was only 76 inches or six feet four inches. New worlds were opened up to me. I discovered something called the drive-through, wherein one can purchase food or conduct banking business from the comfort of the driver's seat. I explored the inside of something called a parking garage and marveled at my ability to drive unimpeded through such a structure. I enjoyed the sensation of actually having my passenger sit next to me instead of somewhere behind me. And I drove down Weaver Street. I was scared. I watched my speedometer as I approached the bridge. 10, 20, 30 miles per hour. I braced for the impact, but nothing happened. 
People no longer stared at my car. My kids were no longer embarrassed to ride with me. My wife was happy. But I wasn't. There was a void in my life that couldn't be filled with QSOs on the local repeater. And I started to hear the whispers. The voices kept saying, If you call CQ, they will answer. Like I said earlier, times change and life evolves. My older daughter is now 17, has her driver's license and her own car. My driving patterns changed, and 99% of the time I drive alone or with only one passenger. In 2003, I turned 50. It was time for my midlife crisis. I bought a Yaesu FT8900 quad band rig and an ICOM IC718HF radio. I dug out my hamsticks. My co-worker, Jim, K-E-2-Y-Z, gave me a tri-mag mount. And so, one Saturday morning, I once again turned the front passenger seat into a radio platform and increased my vehicle's height to 13 feet. My younger daughter isn't too keen on riding in the back seat, and I got the look of death from my wife when she had a ride back there. Once again, I am banished from dozens of streets. I abandon Weaver Street, the drive throughs and the parking garages without a backward glance. My car draws stares from people on the street. I can't pull in my parents' driveway anymore. Was it worth it? I check into e-cars and the 1010 net on a regular basis. I can work Europe on my 10-minute commute to work. And I can access 10-meter repeaters from Florida to Texas. For me, the answer is yes. The voices are satisfied, and I am complete. Your time is up. Go in peace. But return again for our next installment of the Ancient Amateur Archives. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Foundations of Amateur Radio I'm looking at components, not looking for, looking at. I have them, sitting on the bench in front of me. A collection of six variable capacitors and six inductors. There's also a germanium diode, a breadboard, some connecting wires and two connectors. I don't quite need that many capacitors or inductors, and truth be told a breadboard is overkill, but I found myself getting into the spirit of things, and for the tiny investment it seems like the thing to get, whilst you're dipping your toe into the art of electronic circuit prototyping. I'm noticing something odd whilst I'm looking at these components. A familiar feeling in some ways. Butterflies in my stomach. It's the exact same feeling as when I sit at the radio getting ready to speak into the microphone, just as I'm starting a weekly radio net. Something that I've now done about 480 times not to mention the times when I did around 1,600 interviews or broadcast live to the world. Butterflies. I'm mentioning this because, in many ways, this is a momentous event. Not for the world, not for humanity, not even for the hobby, but for me. It's the first time I'm building a circuit completely from scratch. 
No pre-made circuit board, no pre-selected components, no building instructions, just me, some resonance formulas and the hope that I've understood what they represent and that the components I selected will do what my calculations say they should. To make this even less exciting, there's no external power, nothing that's going to go boom or let magic smoke escape, nothing that will break if I get it wrong, but still. The other day I received an email from Phil, Whiskey Foxtrot 3 Whiskey. We've been exchanging email for a couple of years now. He's a member of the Mount Airy VHF Radio Club in Pennsylvania, in the United States. His email outlined an interesting question. What do new amateurs get excited about in this era of the ubiquitous World Wide Web? As a hobby, we're attracting new members every day. Many of those are coming to the community by way of social media, rather than using things that are more traditionally considered radio, like HFDX, making long-distance contact using HF radio, rather than exchanging pithy emails or instant messages via the interconnectedness of the globe-encompassing behemoth of the internet. The answer came easily to me, since last week we had a new amateur, Dave, Victor Kilo 6 Delta Mike, who made his very first long-distance HF contact between Australia and the United States. His level of excitement was contagious, and that's something that I found happens regularly. Someone talks about magnetic loop antennas, and the next thing, six amateurs are building them. One person starts playing with satellites, and before you know it, Yagis are being built and people are describing their adventures. The same is true with my crystal radio. I've talked about it a couple of times, and people are digging out their old kits and telling stories about how they grew up with their dad making a crystal radio. That's what's exciting the new amateurs. The internet is just an excuse to find each other, just like F-Troop is an excuse for people to turn on their communications tool of choice at midnight UTC on a Saturday morning to talk about amateur radio for an hour. My excitement comes from trying new things, and just like keying a microphone for the first time, there's this almost visceral experience of anticipation associated with starting. I'm still working out how I want to build my new toy and how to go about testing to see if it actually works and what to look for if it doesn't. I'm trying hard to resist tooling up with crazy tools like signal generators and oscilloscopes instead opting to use things I already have like LC meters and my ears. I can't wait until I can share how it goes. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. This is W2XBS with this week's propagation forecast for Friday, November 6, 2020. Tad Cook, K7RA in Seattle, reports that the 10.7 centimeter solar flux density was 88.1 on this past Wednesday, November 4th, the highest since November 14th of 2016 when it was 92.8. The average daily solar flux for that week was 76.9 and average daily sunspot number was 18.7, so activity four years ago was similar to recent activity. But in 2016, solar cycle 24 was declining, reaching a minimum about three years later in December 2019. In the coming days, the geomagnetic field will be quiet on November 6th through the 7th, 9th through the 11th, and December 1st through the 2nd. It'll be quiet to unsettled on November 8th, 12th through the 15th, 19th, 26th through the 27th, and November 30th. It'll be quiet to active on November 16th through the 18th and 22nd through the 25th. Now the AMSAT report from Bruce Page, KK5DO. A few weeks ago, it was announced another satellite was going to be launched. On November 5th, Neutron 1 was deployed from the International Space Station. 
The beacon will transmit 1,200 BPS BPSK every 60 seconds. After commissioning, which will take about 30 days, the satellite will be turned on for amateur use depending on the power budget. The uplink will be on 145.84 and the downlink on 435.3 MHz, both FM. We look forward to a long life and congratulate the Hawaii Space Flight Laboratory for its work on this satellite. There are more satellites scheduled for launch in the next few months. AMSAT's RAD FXSAT-2, or FOX-1E, the final satellite in the FOX series, is expected to launch by the end of the year. Tevel mission is a series of eight Israeli one-unit CubeSats with FM transponders expected to launch in December. Two pocket cubes are scheduled to launch in December as well, ESAT-2 and Hades. If you need some missing grid squares in Maine, KL-7TN will be roving from November 13th through the 18th and plans to hit nine main grids. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. I got this question by email, which deals with the subject I prefer to avoid, tower guy wires. This is not one that can be easily or properly covered in a four-minute radio segment. I suggest you refer to the many fine publications available on the Internet and from organizations like the ARL on the subject. I do not own a guide tower. All of mine are freestanding, but I work on commercial guide towers. If you have the right climbing hardware, a ride down the guy wires can be lots of fun, too. Don't tell anybody I said that, please. If your ham tower is guide but is designed to be freestanding and you have to replace the guy wires, here's a simple guideline for the procedure to replace them. First of all, if available, check any literature or web pages about wind loading and guy wire strength. I suppose thicker is better, but heavier guys droop and look bad. So the best bet is to accurately add up all the wind loads for your hardware on your tower and the tower itself. Then use that to select the proper gauge guy wires. On a small home tower, you can fudge the mount point of the guy wires at the tower by a couple of inches. So fabricate another tower anchor for your guys and simply install the new ones right above the old ones. Check for tightness and strength before removing the old wires. I would let the two systems coexist as neighbors for a period of time to stretch the new wires before the old ones are removed. After the break-in period, I paint seal the turnbuckles and other guide wire adjustment points to watch for broken seals and hence slipping guy system mounts. A good seal for guy wire hardware is regular old fingernail polish. I use that stuff for lots of electronic projects from color coding network wires and coax runs to guy anchors and sealing pots. Just a little hint, the best time to buy fingernail polish for color coding is around and after Halloween. That's when all the weird oddball colors like black and orange are in stores. You may need to reseal turnbuckles and bolts as the fingernail polish shrinks and fades with time. As with any tower project, strength is of utmost importance. Always design and build for far worse weather than you can anticipate in your area. Over time, all mechanical systems weaken, so prepare for this effect by designing in extra strength and some degree of flexibility. Also keep in mind that during the change of seasons, the size of metal objects change like nuts and bolts. So a trip up the tower early in the winter and summer to check for damage and tight bolts and nuts is always time well spent. As with any tower work, money spent on climbing books and videos is well worth it. You should review your safety climbing materials every year, just like your recertified SSGuy Warn Spotter. Do this for yourself. 
Remember to play safety ahead of everything in all your tower work. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio on Finer Repeater Systems Nationwide. This Week in Amateur Radio is holding open auditions for news anchors for the weekly National Worldwide Amateur Radio News Service. If you have a good radio voice and can reliably read provided news copy, we are looking for you. This, of course, is an all-volunteer position, and amateur radio license is not required. You must have a high-quality microphone, headset mics are not used, and be familiar with audio editing software to record and edit your finished news stories before uploading. If you would like to try out for a weekly or bi-weekly anchor position with North America's premier amateur radio news on air and podcast, please send an email to our producer, George, W2XBS. You can include a sample MP3 of yourself reading news copies sent as an attachment to w2xbs77 at gmail.com. That's whiskey, the number two, x-ray bravo sierra 77 at gmail.com. Be sure and use anchor audition in the subject line. Please include your phone number and a good window of time for a callback to discuss your submission and our operating logistics to see if This Week in Amateur Radio is a good fit for you. We hope to hear from you soon. The 3U Neutron 1 CubeSat is scheduled for deployment from the International Space Station on November 5th at 10.40 UTC. For the satellite's first month and during its commissioning phase, the Neutron 1 beacon will transmit 1200 BPS BPSK telemetry every 60 seconds on 435.3 MHz. Developed by the Hawaii Space Flight Laboratory at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, the satellite's payload includes a VUFM amateur radio repeater during available times and according to the spacecraft's power budget. The Neutron 1 science mission is spelled out in a formal paper, Neutron 1 Mission, Low Earth Orbit Neutron Flux Detection, and Cosmos Mission Operations Technology Demonstration. HSFL operates and maintains a satellite UHF, VHF, and LS-band amateur radio ground station at Kauai Community College. The primary mission of Neutron 1 is to measure the low-energy neutron flux in low Earth orbit. The science payload, a small neutron detector developed by Arizona State University, will focus on measurements of low-energy secondary neutrons, a component of the LEO neutron environment. A number of other amateur radio satellites are expected to launch or deploy in the next few months. AMSAT's RADFXSAT-2 FOX-1E is expected to go into orbit by year's end on Virgin Orbit's Launcher 1 vehicle. RADFXSAT-2 carries a 30 kHz wide VU linear transponder. The Tavel mission, a series of eight Israeli 1U CubeSats, each carrying a UV-FM transponder, is expected to launch from India on SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket in December. Also from the Herzliya Science Center is a 3U CubeSat called TauSat-1, which is scheduled to launch on a Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency ISS resupply mission in February for subsequent deployment. 
Telsat 1 carries an FM transponder. AMSAT Spain reports that its Pocket Cubes EASAT 2 and Hades have integrated for launch on a SpaceX Falcon 9 in December, while Genesis L and Genesis N have been integrated for launch on Firefly's Alpha rocket. In other amateur satellite news, Jerome Lacayer F4DXV set yet another record, this time via EO88 on October 28th, working Vladimir Veseljev RN9LR at a distance of 4,560 kilometers or 2,827 miles. F4DXV is now a distance record contact partner on 10 LEO satellites while R9LR is a contact partner for records set on four LEO satellites. AMSAT tracks claimed distance records. Researchers at the National Institute of Standards and Technology have devised and demonstrated a system that could dramatically increase the performance of communication networks while enabling record-low error rates and detecting even the faintest of signals. This has the potential to cut the total amount of energy required for state-of-the-art networks by a factor of 10 to 100. The proof-of-principle system consists of a novel receiver and corresponding signal processing techniques, entirely based on the properties of quantum physics and able to handle extremely weak signals with pulses that carry many bits of data. We built the communication testbed using off-the-shelf components to demonstrate that quantum measurement-enabled communication can potentially be scaled up for widespread commercial use, said Ivan Bernkoff, a physicist at the Joint Quantum Institute, a research partnership between NIST and the University of Maryland. Bernkoff and his colleagues reported the results in Physical Review X Quantum. Our efforts show that quantum measurements offer valuable, heretofore unforeseen advantages for telecommunications leading to revolutionary improvements in channel bandwidth and energy efficiency, Burenkoff added. Modern communication systems work by converting information into a laser-generated stream of digital light pulses in which information is encoded in the form of changes to the properties of the light waves for transfer and then decoded when it reaches the receiver. The train of pulses grows fainter as it travels along transmission channels, and conventional electronic technology for receiving and decoding data has reached the limit of its ability to precisely detect the information in such attenuated signals. The signal pulse can dwindle until it is as weak as a few photons, or even less than one on average. At that point, Inevitable random quantum fluctuations called shot noise make accurate reception impossible by normal technology because the uncertainty caused by the noise makes up such a large part of the diminished signal. As a result, existing systems must amplify the signals repeatedly along the transmission line at considerable energy cost, keeping them strong enough to detect reliably. The NIS team's system can eliminate the need for amplifiers because it can reliably process even extremely feeble signal pulses. The total energy required to transmit one bit becomes a fundamental factor hindering the development of networks, said Sergei Polakov, senior scientist on the NIST team. The goal is to reduce the sum of energy required by lasers, amplifiers, detectors, and support equipment to reliably transmit information over longer distances. For 50 years, the German town of Bad Bentheim has hosted the Deutsche Niederländisch Amateur Funker Tage, or German-Dutch Amateur Radio Days, in which the town stresses the importance of amateur radio as a public service. 
Nominations are open until April 21st of 2021. A committee headed by the mayor of Bad Bentheim will choose the winner. The recipient will be invited to Bad Bentheim, Germany, to receive the award, which will be presented August 28th of 2021. The award recognizes an individual radio operator or a group for outstanding humanitarian performance. In 2021, we'd favor candidates who did something special related to the pandemic. But other candidates are welcome, said Jan G. Stodman, PA1TT slash DJ5AN, who chairs the committee. Send your nominations to Stod Bad Bentheim, Post Office Box 1452, D48445, Bad Bentheim, Germany, or submit via email. And finally this week, amateurs who have great enthusiasm for various modes of digital operation are getting some more company on the air, just in a different part of the spectrum. According to our colleagues at Newsline, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission has told commercial AM radio stations that they will be allowed to convert to an all-digital broadcast if they are presently using analog or hybrid of analog and digital signals. The station's changes are to be voluntary. The FCC's late October announcement clears the way for AM stations to provide an all-digital signal that gives better coverage over a wider area of listeners and enables the signal to carry additional information, such as the title and artist of the particular song, and details that are visible on a compatible digital receiver. The stations are required, however, to notify the FCC at least 30 days before making their change. They are still required to be a part of the emergency alert system. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard around the world on amateur radio repeater systems, streaming on the Internet, or on great low-power FM broadcast stations like WGXC-FM, part of the Wave Farm on 90.7 MHz in Accra, New York, serving Greene County and the southern regions of New York's Capital District. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.